If you're like many dealers, you're probably asking the question, how is it that we sold more used cars last year but made less money? In his latest book, Gross Deception, A Tale of Shifting Markets, Shrinking Margins, and the New Truth of Used Car Profitability, author and V-Auto founder Dale Pollack answers the question. The problem, according to Pollack, is that the used car market experienced a seismic change in 2016 that no one seemed to notice. Gross Deception details what happened and how dealers can get back to making money in used cars. Pre-order Gross Deception from Amazon today or visit the V-Auto booth at NADA for a consultation and a free copy. Hello and welcome to a special Used Car Week edition of the Auto Remarketing Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Overby, Senior Editor of Auto Remarketing occasional panel moderator at Used Car Week. In this special series, we take 18 of our general sessions from this year's Used Car Week and share them with you through this podcast. If you missed out on Used Car Week or simply want a refresh on the sessions, these episodes give you a chance to take a deep dive into what was an outstanding week of industry education. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm excited to be here to celebrate the 2019 Women in Auto Finance honorees. Today, we'll hear from six of the women recognized who will share some tips and advice on how they broke barriers to reach their positions. With us today, we have Tina Love, VP Claims and Recovery for Allied. (laughs) Carol Moore, VP and General Counsel, Hyundai Capital. Michelle Rogers, Chief Information Officer for Exeter Finance. Scarlett Smith, VP of Sales, FIS. Sean Uwiko, Director of Marketing for DRN. And Celia Winslow, VP Legal and Regulatory Affairs at American Finance Services. This panel is truly an exciting addition to Used Car Week since auto finance isn't necessarily something that's easy to get into, especially for women in the field. Michelle, can you share some advice for young people looking to enter the industry as well as advance up the ladder? Um, Sure. So um, anytime you're entering an industry, I think in order to be successful, you know, the the first part, it's on you. Like you need to understand um, the business. Um, You need to take advantage of any training and like opportunity. And then you need to know your job and know your job like very well. But most importantly, I think you need to know how your job fits into the overall company. I'm very big of of, uh, supporting like have a good understanding of the overall end-to-end process so you know where you fit and you know where you can provide value to the company because that's what we're all here to do, right? You want to excel in your job, but you also want to help support the company and their strategic objectives. So I think in order to make a splash and and to be recognized, um, you have to do what you do very well and have a very good understanding of everything else. Absolutely, thank you very much. With so many auto finance experts here today, we wanted to touch on a few trends that are top of mind for our honorees. Technology continues to vastly change our industry, of course. Scarlett, what key technological challenges do you see impacting us in the next 10 years? Okay, thank you, Courtney. I made a few notes just to make sure when we were planning on this, I wanted to touch on a thing because we come to the conferences and we oftentimes hear the same things over and over. So rather than just repeating it again, I wanted to talk really about a few things 
on the challenges, so digital. We all know that digital is here and what we're doing. Some things that I find um, really fascinating and important is nine out of 10 companies say that they have a digital strategy and a digital plan. This is from a report by BDO earlier in the year. But that same report said one out of seven are actually implementing that strategy. So when you look at digital and we talk about it and hear about it, see it on commercials, what is it that your um, organization is doing to implement that digital strategy? And I think the challenge really falls around. How do you implement it? How do you support the customer's preferences? How do you support their customer experience? That's what everybody's trying to do, is give the customer good experience, um, support the preferences that they want, and also, I wanted to talk about creating a culture of innovation. So in implementing this, you really have to transform the organization to be able to embrace the innovation. That's one point. I have a couple, two more real quick, though. Um, <laughs> on uh, challenges, I mean, it's all about challenges, right? We also hear efficiencies, and how do we constantly improve efficiencies? Well, you're gonna hear, and you, we always do, about AI, analytics, robotics, so those we're constantly hearing, but in putting those in, and those all can reduce your cost and increase efficiencies. But one thing to think about on the challenge of doing it is when you implement these, how is it being done, and is all the cost savings that you're keeping on the operational side being moved to the IT side? So in the past, see, I see Michelle laughing. She's experienced it, right? Yes, I have. <laughs> so in the past, you know, if you look back, you got all the different organizational departments, and they would create, you know, their own Excel spreadsheets, and they would have all these reports that people didn't even realize they were doing. Is that something that may also happen with all of these new tools? So departmentally, people put in their um, robotics or their AI department by department, and they may reduce their efficiencies, or not reduce, reduce their inefficiencies, and does that cost just move over to the support side on the IT? That's one thing. The last thing I would like to touch about from a challenge is really around the IT landscape. So everybody wants to um, simplify the IT landscape. And in you're doing that, you're consolidating systems, you're maybe replacing core systems, and you may be looking at your integration strategy. So in doing all of these simplification efforts in support of the new technology, you have all the new things coming in. So IT um, landscapes typically look like a house of cards. If an organization has been around for any time at all, you look at the landscape and it's a house of cards and you're trying to simplify it. So how do you do the simplification while bringing all the new technology in? That's it. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate you touching on challenges. I think it's easy to get wrapped up in the new exciting next mm -hmm. thing and not think about how that's going to affect everything downstream. And we're starting to see that now in our industry. So appreciate your insight. Tina, on that same current trends note, in light of climate change and the high level of weather-related uh, disasters that we're seeing, how can financial institutions better understand how to utilize insurance coverage to mitigate their losses? Well, I think a couple of things. The first thing is understanding that if you've got exposure in an area where a natural disaster has happened, you're going to have tons of claims. <laughs> and those claims are going to be total losses. Um, and then understanding insurance carrier behavior when total losses occur. 
Uh, you've got adjusters who are um, working large volumes of claims, um, trying to do them as quickly as possible because no licensed adjuster wants to be accused of holding up a claim, especially in a situation where catastrophes have occurred. Um, so you're gonna get that adjuster that's gonna reach out to the financial institution and say, hey, can you execute a letter of guarantee? Don't do it. <laughs> do not immediately do it. Um, when they're working large volumes of claims and they're also pushing them out quickly, that's a recipe for errors. Uh, and so you, you'll be in situations where your ACV valuation is lower than it should be. And so you gotta take time, you gotta stop, you, you speak to that adjuster and if they send you a letter of guarantee and there's no backup with it, or they ask you to execute a letter of guarantee of your own and they don't send you backup data, uh, you ask them for that ACV valuation, um, you ask them for that settlement summary, and then you take a couple of extra minutes. Even if it's an extra day, it's worth it in the end. You go ahead and you look at things where adjusters commonly make mistakes. Um, mileage is one. Make sure that they're not using an estimated mileage when they're calculating your ACV and that they're using the actual mileage on the date the loss occurred. Um, also, options. If you look at your book out sheet or your information you have in your system and it says you have a sunroof and then you look at the ACV valuation, it's not there. <laughs> you reach out to that adjuster and say, hey, look, I sure have a sunroof. You're not giving me credit for it in my value. Reassess my claim. And, and give me that credit that I need for the value, and then send me updated information. Um, adjusters will typically pull comparable vehicles when they're building out that ACV valuation. You wanna make sure that you glance at those comps um, to ensure that they're being pulled from the right geographic region. You don't want comps 350 miles away from where the collateral was titled. So those are some of the common areas that adjusters tend to make mistakes when they're working large volumes and they're pushing those claims out quickly. Um, every total loss is negotiable. You guys didn't hear that from me. Every total <laughs> loss is negotiable and you need to approach it that way. It's the only way you're gonna get the best benefit from any insurance coverage that you have on a piece of collateral. Do not leave money on the table. Absolutely, thank you. Uh, the recent weather events have been devastating and it's always a sensitive subject. It is, it is. Obviously we need the lenders to be in play, so that's mm -hmm. great advice, thank you. Mm -hmm. Switching gears a little bit, let's talk about personal experience in your auto finance career. What stands out as the pivotal moment, challenge or opportunity uh, in your career that put you on your current path? I'm gonna pass this one back to Michelle. Um, so you have to be open to the opportunities. Um, my background is actually in accounting and finance and I'm now in technology. So um, I took the opportunity when um, I was asked if I wanted to move into technology. Um, I think you, you have to be open to them to flex you know, your skill set. And then once you're in there, I think you know, my biggest challenge was is that we were in a position where we were very much M&A, and I became the lead on quite a few of our strategic um, mergers and acquisitions. So where I thought I knew a lot about the business and the accounting and finance, I was quickly well aware that I needed to come up to speed to every aspect um, as to how to integrate not only their platforms, but as well as their service centers, as well as like people. So um, from there, you've, you've got to develop a plan. 
and you've got to work with uh, the business that's across the side of the table. I think in any uh, leadership or you know that next level like leadership, you've got to develop like those relationships uh, to to make everything successful and uh, check the boxes. Um, you're going to have like disagreements, but um, keep in mind like what the end goal is and develop a path to like that end goal. So you got to be open to make a move when there is like that opportunity. Don't don't be afraid to do something different. Thank you, Tina. Is there something that stands out in your career that put you on your path? Um, I think it was basically understanding what financial institutions need and what's important to them. When you come from a consumer-based insurance background, you're, you're basically dealing all the time with consumers and settling those claims. And then when you move into an area where you're dealing with lenders, things are different. Different things matter to them. You know, the consumer just wants, hey, I want my claim paid so I can get, my, get into a new automobile. Uh, for lenders, it's maximizing those recovery dollars, bringing in every dollar they can before they charge that loan off, uh, meeting those charge-off dates. Um, I think it was learning the terminology and being able to speak uh, intelligently about what matters to financial institutions was the pivotal moment. I was able then to be able to uh, combine insurance products, offer suggestions on the best avenue for more recoveries, um, it was huge for me to understand the industry and be able to speak the same language. It absolutely has its own language, just like we It definitely does. <laughs> a common challenge brought up in prior conversations with our honorees uh, was the expectation for women to take on office housekeeping roles uh, rather than being involved in more oversight and corporate direction. Celia, how did you surpass this, uh, this stereotype in your career? What advice would you give others to do so? Thanks very much for the question. <laughs> and thanks for having us all here. This is a great opportunity to talk. So first of all, for those of you who may not have heard that term, office housework, this is the non-revenue, non-promotable tasks that benefit the company that need to get done, but no one wants to do it. These are the things like taking notes at meetings, cleaning up the conference room, getting coffee for a meeting, someone ordering lunch, those kind of things. Um, and so what's the problem here? And the problem is that women do these tasks a lot more, but they benefit from them a lot less. So for example, managers are far, far more likely to ask women to take on these tasks. Women, on the other hand, are also more likely to volunteer. If, if, the, if the question goes out to the general, general room, by far women will raise their hands and say, oh, I'll, I'd be happy to do that. Um, in fact, women are twice as likely to volunteer. And women are more likely when asked to say yes. When, when a, man, when a uh, male employee is asked, he may say no, and that's, this is part of the other problem, is that when the man says no, oh, that's fine, he's just busy, we understand, he has a lot going on. But when a woman says no to taking notes in a meeting, she's seen as selfish, or a word that I'm not gonna say. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, the, but taking on these tasks doesn't help women, it actually hurts them. So for example, I think it was Sheryl Sandberg that said, uh, when a woman is taking notes in a meeting, chances are that that note taker is not going to be the one that makes the key point. Mm. She's going to be more focused on taking the notes and not participating in the discussion. So her, she'll miss an opportunity. Uh, uh, women also miss, you know, you're not working on getting new business or changing a product if you're focused on making sure the conference room looks neat or cleaning the microwave. So the key question is, what's the solution? And there are some very drastic ones out there. 
Uh, one example that I read talked about a woman who was a CEO, in a room with a bunch of CEOs, all CEOs, and uh, the one woman in the room, one woman CEO, was asked to take notes. So she just looked at the guy that asked her and said, excuse me, are your hands broken? <laughs> Never asked again. Uh, another woman, when asked, said, I don't think you want someone with my hourly rate getting the coffee. <laughs> so not everyone, I know that that's not a solution or a way that I can feel comfortable talking, and I think a lot of people feel that same way. So there's some other less dramatic ways of talking. Things like, oh, well, let me show you how to do that. If you're asked, can you just send the meeting invite, or can you put together this PowerPoint? Let me show you how to do that. Or, um, okay, that's fine. I'd be happy to clear, you know, to get the lunch for this meeting, but how about when the next one comes up, you get it. Um, or alternatively, oh, well, we just hired a new assistant. Why don't we, you know, I think he's looking for some opportunities. Why don't we ask him? Or it can be a negotiation. Well, fine, I'll get the lunch, but remember I was asking for an intern to do something? How about I get the intern to help me with another project or, or something? And for the men in the room, if you're a manager and you're looking to task at, you know, to put out some of these tasks, make sure that you're calling on everybody in the room. And if you're not a manager, or even if you are, I know the CEO at our company has cleaned the microwave, one of the VPs is always the one that empties the dishwasher, male VPs. So, and plenty, I'm sure, guys out there do the same thing. But just, you know, kind of keep that in the back of your mind to make sure that, the, you know, there's not some magic fairy that comes and takes the coffee cups off the <laughs> uh, conference table. And lastly, for companies, one alternative is to really value these tasks. And instead of saying, oh, well, let's see who made, the, you know, I don't know, the most money, whatever it is, who brought in the most business. We're also looking at who's the best team player. When you're looking for who to promote, who's the best team player, who really helped out, who stepped in when it was needed. And so that these tasks are not um, detrimental to women, but actually benefit women when they do it. I think that's a really great point. It's hard to be involved in the conversation if you're not... If you're, if you're taking notes or you're doing side work, and I definitely think it's worth companies investing in having someone do that, if they're going to have an executive at the table, they don't need to be you know, involved in that. So thank you for sharing that. And along that same line, I have a question for Sean. It can be easy for women to get pigeonholed uh, into those types of assignments, more visual than strategic, making a presentation look nice, office decor, uh, a lot of the feedback was around decorating uh, that we got from the honorees. How do you address that expectation and assert your value into your organization? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for, for asking. And before we get started, thank you, Courtney, and I'm honored to be on the stage with these women. So congratulations to you ladies as well. So I thought I'd start um, my response, actually, by asking a question to the audience. And unfortunately, up here, I can't see the hands, but I'm going to make some assumptions. <laughs> you can wave them or whatever. But I want to ask um, a show of hands. How many men in the audience have ever been asked by your manager to make something look pretty? One, two, three, two, three, three. Okay. four. Now let's ask the women in the audience the same question. 25. <laughs> so I see a lot more hands, and I suspect some of the women um, here on the panel are, you know, share that same experience. What's interesting to me, it's, not it's, it's very telling, but it's not surprising. Um, and, and what's interesting is the women who are raising their hands, I'm in marketing, some may think that's the expectation of marketing, and I hope we can have a little of that conversation here, but the women on this panel, these are, you know, we have lawyers, we have CIOs in the audience, we have heads of collections, we have heads of sales. These are women who are very seasoned leaders in their careers who have been asked the same question. 
So yes, we can get pigeonholed to your point, we can get stereotyped, but that by no means you know, means that we have to stay there. So the question becomes, what do we do? How do we step out of that role and step into a more strategic role within the organization? And I like to think when I get tasked for a visual, um, you know, hey, can you, can you make this pretty? And I'm not calling <laughs> anybody in the organization. I've had some, some of the men in my organization really understand this and, and help others to understand it. But when I get asked that task, I think it's more about a communication project. You know, what are we trying to communicate? So, and that, that's not just a problem for marketing to solve, that's a problem that every single one, you know, I just got out of our peer-to-peer -peer session. There was a lot of talk about how complex this industry is. It's all about communications. It's about the collections manager who's trying to communicate a new days past due strategy, the CIO who's trying to talk about a new technology initiative, or even that marketing director who wants to make sure that the customers are really understanding the value of a product, the, the you know, differentiating factors. So to me, it's really a communications problem that we're trying to solve. And what can be discouraging is oftentimes you get asked that question, you don't get invited in early into the conversation. Hey, we're trying to solve these problems and we want you to help us solve them. You know, if you're lucky, sometimes you get a day, maybe a few hours, and God forbid, a few minutes before presentation is due, and you get brought into the conversation then. It's really hard to be strategic when something's due in hours, minutes, you know, days. So I think the key is, is finding a way to be invited to that conversation early on, to, be, um, to take part in the strategic part of that conversation. And throughout my career, one of the things I keep going back to, I had a, a great you know, mentor and, and manager at one point who said, you know, we all measure outputs. So, you know, how many this did we put out? How many recoveries? How many, you know, outputs are very tangible and we can measure them. But it's also really, really important to measure outcomes. Mm -hmm. And if we're thinking about outcomes, we're asking different questions. We're asking questions about what do we want the person who sees this, person who touches this, person who uses this, what do we know about that person and what do we want them to do? What action do we want them to take? What is the outcome we want to achieve? And the thing that's exciting to me is outcomes are objective and you can, you can measure them and they're very strategic. And so when you change the conversation about communication and about outcomes, hopefully you begin to establish yourself as that strategic trusted advisor and you get moved in earlier in the conversation. I've collaborated with men in this audience um, at DRN where we've started the, the, the conversation in one place but the more we talked, the more we collaborated, the more we talked about what outcome we wanted to have, we took the original project and we threw it out the door and said, this is what we need to create. It's something entirely different because we want to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's about not just getting invited to the table. I want to create my own table and have people want to be at that table with me. So that's kind of how I, t I tend to address this and I think it's a, a really good place for us to start moving ourselves into that strategic role and out of that make it pretty role. Thank you very much you. for that. Very interesting from a marketing perspective. That's <laughs> great advice. I'd like to take an opportunity to talk about leadership overall and ask Celia what the number one characteristic she finds most important to be a successful leader, uh, especially in our industry today and why. Well, 
Um, I had trouble finding, thinking <laughs> in the end. I was thinking of what's the most important thing that would be a little different than maybe what, you're go you know, what the general answers to that question are. And so I'm gonna answer it from more of a DC perspective. And a leader in DC is really someone that has a lot of connections. So it's somebody that knows people, and it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I, you know, I'm best friends with the Secretary of Defense or something like that, but somebody who's willing to go out of their office, get out of their comfort zone, and meet people. And I think that that, I would assume that's true in other places other than DC, but someone who can reach out when there's a question, well, who can I ask that to outside my organization and really knows that and can really use those connections in a good way. Great, thank you. Carol, how can an aspiring leader build credibility in the workplace? Is there anything unique to our industry in that respect? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are, some of them are somewhat generic. One is um, external things. So, you know, as a lawyer, there's, I have a certain sort of credibility when I'm talking about legal things. Um, but I think the other is by what you put out. So um, you build credibility by, you know, saying what you mean and meaning what you say. Um, I want to harken back to something Michelle said about knowing all the aspects of the business. So as, as a lawyer, it's very easy to focus on what are the legal rules around this particular thing. But if I understand the downstream impact of the decisions or the recommendations that I'm making, then my decision making is better. Um, you know, so I had an opportunity to spend um, a little over a year on the OEM side of the house, and that really gave me a very different perspective when I came back to finance. Um, and, and so I recommend, um, I forget who said it, but take that chance. If you have an opportunity to go do something that's, I mean, I was still a lawyer, but I was in a whole different side of the business, um, to go do something that's maybe different from what you've done, you know, Try leaping before you look. It's it's okay, you know. But um, um, but yeah, I think that's um, that's important. And I think also having a quality of empathy, of you know, understanding the perspective of the person who's talking to you, um, really builds credibility because people are like, oh, this person is going to listen, they're going to understand me, they're not immediately going to say, oh, no, you can't do that, but let me try to understand what your objectives are. Um, why, why is it that you're proposing this? Think about the outcomes, you know, like, this sounds like a great idea until you get to this point where the whole thing blows up. Um, so if you can sort of project ahead, then I think people are like, okay, this is someone who can think outside of their own realm, but also, you know, more broadly across the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to be genuine and transparent in any industry, especially ours today, and especially in the legal realm. So thank you for that. Uh, we have a little bit of extra time, so I want to ask the ladies, uh, what's your prediction of the next trend you think we'll be talking about on next year's conference panel? Does anybody want to share their prediction? I think um, I'm really interested in some of the conversations around mobility, um, transportation as a service, and all these little catchy phrases and what all. And, and I don't know. I don't know, you know, the, um, there's so much emotion and passion around cars, which is why our industry is so exciting. It's a, a product that people are seriously passionate about. Um, and, you know, in our whole American mythology, especially since the Second World War, is around one person and one car and you know all of that and are we really going to transition to a car is a thing and I need it when I need it but you know I drive it from 7:30 to 8 in the morning and from 7 to 7:30 in the evening and the rest of the time it's sitting in a parking lot and maybe I could monetize that or maybe I don't need to own it I just need to use it when I need it um, 
that's going to be a huge cultural paradigm shift. And it, I think also from a finance standpoint, you know, if we move away from financing, you know, person X when they buy their brand new Hyundai, which they should all buy, um, uh, <laughs> to, you know, how do we finance the platform that delivers this transportation as a service? So I think it's a real paradigm shift. It's going to be very interesting to see, you know, the Silicon Valley people are like, oh, yes, you know, my, somebody said the other day in three years there'd be no more car dealers, and, you know, that's not going to be true. So, um, but um, uh, it's just going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, absolutely. I like the plug, too. <laughs> I think we're going to be talking about who the next director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is going to be. <laughs> and I think if it's possible that Elizabeth Warren, who um, believes she who semi came up with the idea for Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, if she's the one to appoint it, I think it's going to look very different than it does right now. Yes, I agree. That should be very interesting, especially last year's focus being all compliance. I think we're evening out and we're seeing, you know, more consumers are buying SUVs and we're seeing longer loan times and we're seeing more protected consumers and how that all ends up uh, in, you know, in the delinquency world should be really interesting as well. And lastly, I want to offer everyone a chance to thank someone in their work who was a mentor or a colleague that they're appreciative of uh, and maybe offer a little bit of advice on how they helped you. Um, does anyone want to start off with that? I'll take that one. Okay. She's, she's somewhere out there. <laughs> I can't see her right now, but I get to spend every day with Ann Holtzman. And those of you that know her can probably imagine what my life looks like, uh, chasing her around and keeping up with, with all that energy and everything that goes on um, in our environment. She has a unique way of taking a person like me who's very structured, uh, very black and white, not the most creative individual in the world, and she sometimes will nudge me towards things that I feel uncomfortable doing. Sometimes she will throw the lasso <laughs> out there, come on, Tina, <laughs> let's do this, we can do this. Um, I get phone calls from her, and she usually starts with, Tina, I had an idea. Um, <laughs> You know, five years ago, I used to say, Lord Jesus, help me. She's had an idea. <laughs> and now when I get that phone call, it's like, okay, I'm going to be challenged. And I'm going to be creative, and I'm going to get to step outside of my comfort zone. So i got to give her a shout out and tell her that I appreciate that, because I've grown exponentially That's a sign in of the a last figure. 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're somewhere. <laughs> I had, uh, um, I, I've been lucky to be surrounded by awesome people really throughout my entire career, but there was one boss I had umpty ump decades ago, um, uh, also a lawyer, um, who uh, gave me two pieces of advice. He said one was assume good intent. You know, consciously choose to assume that the people who are coming to you with their crazy story really want the best. They want the best outcome for the company, for the consumer, for the dealer, whoever the other parties are in the, in the thing. And, and if you do that, most of the time you're going to be right. Sometimes you're going to be wrong. But if you start there, you can always go to a different place. But if you start in that different place, it's very hard to come back. Um, and the other thing he always said was get the facts. So somebody comes bursting into your office with this tale of woe um, and how you know, they've done us wrong. And there's always at least two other versions of this story. And you need to get those in order to understand the full picture and really make an intelligent recommendation. And it's very easy to react to the first thing you hear 
but don't do that. Pause a minute, as you were saying, mm -hmm. with the claims. Pause a minute, take a breath, help them to take a breath, and then begin to probe gently about you know, what's really going on. And that was some of the best advice, and I try to give that to my team as well. That's great advice, thank you. Um, I think it's, it's hard for me to, for any like one person to think, I mean, I have a, a great leadership team and a great team uh, back at the office, which is all a part of why I'm here. But to your point, I mean, there have been many mentors that I've had along the way that have shaped me. And um, one in particular that it seems to like resonate with me and I try and you know, live my daily life uh, uh, to it is it's not about me. Mm. While yes, I'm a person, I have a job, I'm in a leadership position, it's all not about me. It's really about the people that you are helping and how and what impact and how you are affecting their lives. So in a leadership position, you have the unique opportunity to change people's lives. True. You, you deal with people that have strengths and weaknesses all day and probably focus most on the people who have weaknesses. That's where you spend their, your entire time. Um, and there is a way to like work with them and communicate with them so it is better for them. So when I see uh, someone that I've worked with all along the way, when they grow in their career or they're happy in their position or they take on like that new role and they're continuing to improve, that's when I have a value that I know I'm doing something worth, worth it. Thank you. Well, I have, um, you know, in my past, the, the opportunity to move into sales. So the manager that let me move into sales, it was really around persistence. So one of the things, looking back, they were like, um, he said, Scarlett, I let you move over into sales because you um, had the desire. You had a deep desire to do this, and you were persistent about doing it without being a, a pest, right? And, um, and then he would give me advice and help mentor me along the way. One of the most important pieces was don't depend um, on just you being the absolute leader. Bring whoever you need into your efforts, whether they're um, a higher level than you, whether they know a lot more than you, because it's your job to bring the right group together and let the group and the team go and do this effort as one. Thank you. Yeah, I was really fortunate early in my career. Um, I actually started out doing technical writing and there were a couple of things I, I, I learned from this, this mentor. So one was to fully immerse yourself in what you were doing, really become good at it and understand it. You know, put yourself literally in, in someone's shoes. I remember, you know, getting tools out and taking apart this massive scanner because I had to write about it and I felt like it was only fair if I really did it. And I hate reading a manual, you know, it sounds like they never touched the product. So she was really right about that. And that, that advice has carried me through my career. And the other thing is, always remember that you're a steward of, of the company's brand. And we really all are, we're stewards of that brand. And to me, stewardship has a very different meaning than management, right? right. So stewardship really means putting yourself in the shoes and thinking, you know, this is, this is my company. What would I do if this was my money, my budget? So being that steward of the brand and the, and the budget. And then I think the third thing, and this is certainly something I'm experiencing right now with my current, um, you know, current manager is, is really you know, giving me that opportunity to just jump in. So you know, jump in. A lot of times that learning happens just by doing. Absolutely, thank you, Sean.
So I see now we have one minute left, so I'll Sorry. be very fast. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to take a slightly different uh, tack. I have had, in what may be rare today, I have had the same boss for the past 13 years, who is a man, um, and is currently the CEO of our association, Bill Himpler, and he has been an exemplary boss, and he never uh, held me back and would always say, well, why don't you come to this meeting? Well, what do you think, Celia? And of course he didn't agree with me at all times, and of course he didn't take all the suggestions, uh, but he always, I always felt, I've always felt like I have a voice, and I've always felt included, and I think he does that with everyone that works for him from, you know, the newest hire to somebody who's been at the association for 35 years. And I think that that's a good, that's a, another good role, another good strategy that a leader can take. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. Appreciate your time today. Let's give them a round of applause. That concludes this special Used Car Week edition of the Auto Remarketing Podcast. Be sure to save the date for next year's Used Car Week, which takes place November 16th through November 20th, 2020 at the Weston Kierlin in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you there. If you're like many dealers, you're probably asking the question, how is it that we sold more used cars last year but made less money? In his latest book, Gross Deception, A Tale of Shifting Markets, Shrinking Margins, and the New Truth of Used Car Profitability, author and V-Auto founder Dale Pollack answers the question. The problem, according to Pollack, is that the used car market experienced a seismic change in 2016 that no one seemed to notice. Gross Deception details what happened and how dealers can get back to making money in used cars. Pre-order Gross Deception from Amazon today or visit the V-Auto booth at NADA for a consultation and a free copy.